There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kave. Joining me today is Dr. Ryan Moreno. Ryan, did you like my new intro? The voice. I mean, gonna gonna win a lot of hearts, break a lot of hearts too. That's, that's true. Uh, my my introductions are patently obnoxious. I recognize this completely. Um, <laughs> They're perfect. But uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to be more mature now trying to leave behind childish things ryan i'm a semi-professional podcaster at this point i have to uh act as such buddy thanks for joining me today yeah thanks for having me back um I'm, it's always my pleasure oh you're you're one of us now you're one of us i should i should probably say what the show is i realize i've gone like 30 episodes without saying what the show is at the title <laughs> the worst host anyways we're like a medical type podcast we talk about medical type things but sometimes we don't and i don't know i don't i still don't have a good uh explanation for what the show is if you have one let me know today we have a really cool guest i'm glad that you're here of all people did you ever watch lord of the rings yeah multiple times many times i'm glad you're here with me sam at the end of all things Um, so today we have an author, David Poses. I think, I hope I'm saying his name correct. Is it Poses like Moses or is it Poses like a model does? I'm not sure. We'll ask him when he comes on. Um, but he has a really great book that uh, we both, did you have a chance to read it? Yeah. All right, cool. So I did too. It's called The Weight of Air. It's this book about his experience with uh, heroin addiction. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk to him. But one thing before we do that, I it'd be good to talk to you about he talks about in the book uh, buprenephrone. I hope I'm saying that right. Buprenephrone. Buprenephrone? Buprenephrine. Buprenorphin. Buprenorphin. That's. 
I like your way better though. Boop, <laughs> boop and nephron. I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher that word. Uh, I'm a GI doctor. I don't use that medication. Oh, we can just um, call it boop too. Boop. Okay, good. Boop yeah. or boop. 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 Uh, can you, can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about boop? So buprenorphine is a really cool medication that we have um, that we've had available for a long time. It's primarily used for treatment of opioid addiction um, or opioid use disorder. For, I mean, not not to kind of like stereotype here, but primarily for like people who use heroin um, or get addicted to other opioids uh, medications, whether they're prescribed or on the street. And so the difference between buprenorphine and other medicines like methadone, where kind of you give someone an opioid that we know is safe, that we know they don't have to inject, that there's lower risk of overdosing on, um, those kind of things. Buprenorphine is different from that because it is not a full opioid. So it goes to the same opioid receptors that, that cause kind of addiction, cause the tolerance dependence and the same receptors that would cause an overdose too in your brain. Um, but because it's only a partial agonist at those sites, it kind of sits really nicely in there uh, and doesn't cause people to overdose. It doesn't cause people to be like totally altered, um, doesn't make them stop breathing, uh, doesn't kind of cause the other problematic effects that we we tend to think about for most opioids. Um, and the really cool thing about buprenorphine too is so since it can sit in those receptors, it can kind of block cravings people have for using opioids um, and kind of treat their withdrawal. But it also, because it has a much higher affinity for those receptors, it sits so much tighter in there. Uh, if someone is taking their buprenorphine, which the, the uh, brand name would be like Suboxone, is probably what people are more familiar with. Um, but so if, if they're taking that, if they've taken it within the past day or two, or if they've gotten like their monthly injection and say they have the worst day of their life, say their best friend comes home and says, I, I scored a bunch of dope. Um, even if someone was to go out and use again, it blocks the heroin from getting into those receptors, blocks the fentanyl from getting into those receptors and would even block car fentanyl. So it prevents overdose, uh, but also for kind of addiction being a disease that we think about as having kind of this chronic relapsing remitting time course where we know that for people to get into like recovery where they're no longer using any drugs we usually take kind of on average 10 or more uh, relapses or recurrences of use um, so you're protecting those people not only from overdosing the like very bad consequences we think about from from using heroin fentanyl all of that stuff but also the kind of rewarding things like someone quitting smoking who goes out and smokes again, it feels great. You think of all the reasons you smoked in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you couldn't get that nicotine into those receptors, if you could block that, that's what buprenorphine does. Um, so that, that one little, little hiccup here and there, uh, we can kind of prevent that. So it's kind of, I mean, I hate to use the term like a, a miracle drug because there's no such thing as a miracle. I'm convinced, but uh, it, it's as close as we have to kind of like a pharmacologic wonderkind. Oh, wonderkind, not saying that word right. Ha, you have your word, <laughs> I have mine. So you, you're one of these dirty hippies that believes in harm reduction. That's the sense I'm getting <laughs> from this conversation. Um, that's All really, of the above, yeah. 
That's very really dirty. interesting. So it acts on the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a long time since medical school, the mu receptor, uh, the mu receptors, and it's an agonist, but it's a partial agonist. So it does a little bit of what opioids do, but not to the degree. It seems safer. doesn't give you that respiratory depression, I guess. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's so that's the main benefit. And it is the mu receptors. There's different opioid receptors. But for all intents and purposes, people can ignore them because they're not really relevant to like the good effects, the bad effects, any of that for kind of most discussions and nobody really understands them anyway. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a partial agonist. So you never really get like a, a high, you're never going to stop breathing. I've seen someone take a 90 day supply of a pretty high dose of their Suboxone in front of me uh, and they had no problems. They took it. Wait, wait, what did they do? They took it in front not, of me? Not right in front of me, but uh, we confirmed that this person took a 90 day supply like immediately. Wow. Between, between last being seen by their prescriber and coming back to the hospital. And they, they end up being okay. You don't recommend it, of course, obviously, to do that. Yeah, obviously, I mean, no one should overdose on anything. But in terms of kind of medications that cause overdoses, this is one of the safest things we have. Um, and obviously, in like little kids and stuff, those kind of things go out the window because little kids are just terrifying when it comes to medical things. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but for adults, you can't really stop breathing from taking buke. Wow, that's interesting. All right, well, I'm looking forward to chatting with him about it. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for that. Um, so before we get to him, just a quick shout outs. Thank you to Nadim for helping us with production. If you don't already, follow us on Twitter. Follow Ryan at Twitter at... At Ryan Marino, one word, R-Y-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-O. I like that you didn't put the doctor into your Twitter handle. I appreciate that. <laughs> and if you haven't already, subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. Stay tuned for a discussion with David Poses. And we're back with author David Poses. He wrote a great book, which both Ryan and I had a chance to review and read, The Weight of Air. It's a really honest um, I hear words like unflinching, and I think it applies here, uh, and sometimes maybe a little painful retelling of his experience with heroin addiction and his uh, journey through sobriety. So uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, it's a really great book. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I'm so uh, happy to be here, and it's so great to meet you and Brian. Um, so let me start with in your book, you talk about how you are sort of indirectly exposed to heroin uh, via the club kids. Now, that's a cultural phenomenon that uh, I didn't really know about until recently. And Ryan definitely missed out on because he's too young. Can you tell our listeners what the club kids, what, what that cultural phenomenon was? Um, yeah, I mean, well, it, it's probably worth mentioning that they really were just vehemently against heroin um, in the beginning. Uh, it was my friend Rob that introduced it to me and then, you know, everybody else. Um, but for the longest time, they were, you know, they, they would do everything else except heroin. Um, so the club kids were, uh, there were these clubs in New York City um, when I was, you know, from a very young age, uh, Limelight, USA, and Tunnel um, were the big ones. 
And it was basically a scene of like just people who were kind of self-professed, uh, you know, freaks and weirdos. They, we, you know, just dressed in very outrageous clothes and platform sneakers and, uh, you know, whatever. And we went out very, very late. Uh, we stayed out very late and, and um, you know, woke up at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, it was just this very kind of decadent life of, of hedonistic values. How did your friend Rob get involved in this story? Was he one of these people? Um, well, so Rob uh, was friendly with Michael. I'm not exactly sure how he knew him, but Michael was the you know leader of the club kids for the longest time. And so that, you know, Rob being friendly with him um, meant he's friendly with everybody, basically, because mm -hmm. everybody, you know, loves Michael. So um, uh, when I was like six, I, I, I met Rob um, when I was like 15 or 16. And when I found out he was on heroin, um, I mean, I had kind of been on a mission to track heroin down since um, fifth grade when uh, when this cop explained that it was the worst drug in the world because it uh, makes you not have any feelings. Um, and he said that like it was a bad thing and that was, you know, I was sold. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, Rob, uh, everything else when I was at the beginning of high school, like, you know, there was peer pressure for, for pot and alcohol and, and um, uh, you know, but, but. I, I didn't like that stuff. Um, so I found out Rob was a heroin addict and I just uh, begged him for a few months to give me heroin. Um, and around that time, he took me out to the club one night um, and I struck up a conversation with Michael and we found that we had a, a lot um, in common just in terms of our um, upbringings. And uh, when I told him like, you know, look, I'm friendly with all of these high school kids that are, you know, thirsty and rich and ready to go to the clubs. Um, he hired me as a promoter. Um, so I started going out a lot and, um, and I found that, you know, they were on ecstasy and smoking crack and, and, uh, rehypnol and, you know, everything else. Um, and Rob, I think it, um, you know, Michael was always really just very much against it. And then there was just a, a night where he was like, let me just see what it's all about. Um, and, and then once he got hooked, um, it, it kind of spread from there basically. Um, it's interesting, those other drugs, everything from pot to alcohol to those other ecstasy, everything else, that didn't ap appeal to you? Had you, had, you, why were you so specifically intent on heroin? It was, what, what was it about I mean, heroin? Basically, like I was, I was, um, you know, long before depression was part of my vernacular, I, I was, you know, I mean, I like thought I was broken. I mean, like I used to lie in bed at night as a kid, um, wishing for a terminal disease. And my mom was always like, why are you so sad? Don't you want to be happy? Like as if it was a choice. So I thought like, what's wrong with me that I can't, you know, figure this out. Um, so in fifth grade, uh, there was this assembly for, you know, dare, the uh, dare to keep kids off drugs, just so yeah. you know, I'm an eighties child. Um, <laughs> so the cop explained that um, uh, out, you can't drive if you drink, you pot makes you stupid, cocaine makes you angry, he told this awful story about um, a, a kid who uh, took acid and thought he was an orange and peeled off his skin. And, you know, we had to stand up and be like, I swear to just say no to, you know, blah, blah, blah. After yeah, everything. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, at that point, at the age of 10, like my lifelong dream was to drive, you know, uh, headfirst into a tree. So I knew I couldn't drink. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I mean, I thought I was stupid. So pot wasn't going to help. And I <laughs> certainly didn't have any business being angrier than I was. Um, and then he said, you know, the worst drug is heroin. Um, it was originally made as a painkiller, um, but it's so strong that you don't have any feelings. And, and, you know, he said it like that was just awful. And I thought like, this is exactly what I need. And he told us about the um, poppy, uh, you know, the poppy flower. 
And I thought of the Wizard of Oz when uh, the Wicked Witch makes poppies come down and everybody, you know, just see the anxiety melt off their faces. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my mom started taking me to a shrink when I was like four. Um, my parents got divorced. And yeah, I was just so ashamed of the sadness that um, I, you know, I kept my worst feelings inside, but my, my, my shrink figured out that I was depressed. And so long story short, like by the time I got to high school, um, I tried like basically every antidepressant known to man and nothing worked and some of them made it worse. Um, I mean, I was aware of pot and alcohol and my friends were using that stuff like, you know, a, a, an activity garnish. Um, I tried, I got drunk once when I was like 15. And I mean, I've had like sips of alcohol since then, but I, it just, it was disgusting to me. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I'll never do that again. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's like 30 years later. Um, and uh, I smoked pot a few times and I just, you know, I don't like the feeling of being intoxicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, maybe now things are a little different, but in the early nineties, when I started using heroin, heroin was like this crazy hardcore drug, like, oh my God, you know, nobody yeah. can. Um, and I didn't know about opioids. So, um, you know, I didn't even know that it was, uh, you know, part of this category and all that kind of business. But I mean, it did exactly what I needed it to do. And yeah. I had made a decision before um, I tried it that, you know, I mean, I was suicidal at the time. So either heroin was going to work, in which case I was just going to use it. Like, I didn't care that it was illegal. I didn't care if it was expensive. I didn't care that it was dangerous. Like, that was going to keep me alive. Um, and if it didn't live up to the hype, I was just going to, you know, jump off a building. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, you were. Really- Your story is so interesting because there's so many. I- I don't want to go off on like a two hour rant here, but there's so many like important details. And I mean, you're an incredible writer. Like I've, I've read a million books about addiction and this is, is one of the best ones. I I couldn't put it down. Um, But like the fact that you were trying to treat this kind of pain that maybe is more mental or psychological is like a very common theme thinking of these like medications as a painkiller they are also amazing antidepressants. I mean, we use like anti or uh, we use amphetamines and opioids for like end of life depression yeah. medically as well, because nothing, nothing really works better than these drugs. Well, um, uh, opioid, and- like, I don't, I, it like, it, it's kind of astonishing to me, like it, you know, speaking gigs when I'll say, um, you know, heroin saved my life and, and, uh, and, and I get these really funny looks and people are like, that's crazy, you know, nobody believes it. But then when you start to explain that, like, look, um, opioids flood your brain with serotonin and dopamine, they bind to your opiate receptors. Opiate receptors regulate uh, physical pain and emotional well-being. Emotional unwell-being is, you know, depression and, and shittiness. And opioids, it's not like you rub them on your knee after surgery like an ice pack. I mean, they go to your brain. So all of that, you know, pain is in your brain and, and it's mental. I mean, I, I don't understand why anybody doesn't understand that they work for depression. Um, I mean, clearly they do. Uh, so, um, you know, but there's obviously, um, it's not the healthiest thing that you can do for depression. But um, I think, you know, the idea that that bad people use painkillers um, and then make excuses for using them. And we tell them like, oh, you're, you're never gonna feel better until you stop taking opioids. But like, if your foot got chopped off, nobody would tell you, Oh well, clearly your foot hurts because you're of that morphine that your doctor prescribed, and you're only going to feel better when you stop. Like these narratives are so at odds with each other um, between doctor-prescribed opioids and illicit um, opioids. So if, if anything is true about one, it, it has to be true about the other. And what I really appreciate about you sharing your story so much, David, 
is that like so there, there's this idea that people just start using heroin or any opioid to get high and first of all like who cares if someone wants to get high i mean we need to get past that as a society but the bigger issue to talk about is that most people are using for a reason they're self-treating something yeah. and it's not you're yeah using opioids and i i mean i think that that's very important where if if you're mad that people are using heroin, then you should be mad that people have untreated trauma, depression, right. horrible circumstances that they're trying to self-medicate for. Um, you shouldn't be yeah. mad at the people who are, are trying to treat themselves. And that's kind of where, in my mind, the, the divide breaks down into judging the victims for how, how they respond to situations versus trying to stop victimizing people. Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, I think the statistic was, um... Uh, 49% of um, depressed adults are unresponsive to antidepressants. 20% of depressed adults use opioids for their depression. Um, I mean, it, it, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, we, we're not doing, we, I wish we hated the, pro, the reasons that people use drugs instead of um, the people that- The people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy what, um, what, we've going, what we've got going on here. And the sad thing is most of the narratives are either like from the perspective of hating these people. Um, I mean, the movies that came out in 2021 so far about heroin addiction have all been abysmal. Um, I mean, looking at like the genre of kind of addiction memoirs, it, it's a lot of people kind of faking the details and that kind of thing. Um, so this kind of honest retelling, I think is really important because this is a story that people don't hear. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, the, the, the kind of um, recovery narrative is also so flawed. I mean, if, if um, you know, medical experts without medical credentials um, treating a medical condition with magical thinking, we call that quack medicine. But when you go to rehab and they say, oh, um, you've got to put your life and will in God's heads and work these steps and join this anonymous support group, we're like, yeah, that's clearly, you know, the way to do it. And we know that God doesn't cure any other diseases. I mean, it, it like the things that we believe about drugs and addiction are when you put it in the con like if you cross out addiction and write like medical condition, these things are completely fucking impossible. I mean, you guys are doctors, you know that. Um, but it's been siloed off from, from science and medicine for so long that, you know, we believe that stuff. I mean, they told me in rehab um, when I was 18 that uh, I said, you know, depression was the problem. And, um, you know, I mean, it's like with, with, um, any kind of compulsive behavior, you know, you, you know, I have to turn the doorknob 77 times or my cat's gonna die. If you stop turning the doorknob, um, you're sober, you're abstinent, right? So I've stopped turning the doorknob, but I still think my cat's gonna die and I'm freaking out every time I open the door and whatever. So like, I haven't solved the compulsive behavior as a mental health disorder. So the, the physical addiction is a medical condition. The compulsive um, behavior is a mental health uh, condition and we're telling people, no, 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 you're making excuses. It's not depression, you know, whatever. But we know that that's what's going on with any other compulsive um, behavior. And that, I mean, that was a huge setback for me that they were like, you're totally full of shit. You're making excuses. Um, heroin has no medicinal value for you. Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, you know what it comes down to? It comes down to whether or not people are really going to believe that uh, addiction is a disease. And we, right. we talk about it. You know, I, I first of all, I'll apologize you know, I, I speak with an older language, so I might use terminology or phrases that are not 
that that I shouldn't that I should learn you know I should learn more that's one of the reasons I love having Ryan on I talked to Ryan so much is he's really done a really good job of you know expanding people's ideas of what addiction means and and who can be an addict so you know don't mind correcting me if I say something that you know I shouldn't um but it but it kind of reminds me of this old Mitch Hedberg bit you guys know that comedian Mitch Hedberg super funny comedian and um, unfortunately, I think he died of an overdose, but he he at one point was talking about addiction and he's like, you know, people don't really believe it's a, a, a disease. If they did, they wouldn't be mad at people for it the way they are. Like you never hear people saying, damn it, John, you have diabetes the same way they yell at someone for being an alcoholic. You know what I mean? No, like, definitely. Um, I, I, so I don't I don't know if even in the medical profession, we totally believe it yet we've started to use the language addiction is is a disease, but I don't know if it's really taken hold emotionally in the medical profession. I mean, the politicization and the legalization has been so effective over the past century. And I mean, I think we, we are in a very puritanical society to begin with. There's a lot of kind of biases that we are kind of born or grow into just from a societal perspective. But for the people listening, I mean, if, if there's any doubt about kind of saying someone can use heroin and, and not be addicted to heroin, not be kind of like at, at the bottom of the barrel or hitting rock bottom, as you said in your book, um, like 85% of people who use heroin don't have addiction. You, you can try heroin and not end up addicted. Um, these, these are just very separate things and it's not, not a substance issue. And as David said, I mean, marijuana wasn't, or cannabis wasn't interesting all of these other drugs, the, the kind of like gateway drug theory is all, all debunked scientifically, but, but holds in, in society, holds in our culture for whatever reason. And so, I mean, that was, I just really appreciated that this book shares something that's not at all the common narrative, because the common narrative is, yeah. is not accurate. Well, I mean, and, and I, I knew all along that I wasn't the exception. Um, but for the longest time, I mean, like my, my family was like, um, thought I was some kind of exception. And it's like, I, you know, I, I don't know any stereotypical junkies, um, but I know a lot of people like me, um, you know, and everybody I know like me knows more people like me and none of the stereotypes. So, um, I mean, I think we, I, I don't know why we believe all this stuff, but even, you know, the, the thing about drugs in general, it's like we, um, you know, we have this like, uh, a drug is a drug is a drug. And like we lump everything together as recreational drugs. And it's like, I mean, I learned in fifth grade that every kind of substance affects our neural pathways differently. Um, but then I went to rehab and they're like, no, that's bullshit. It's all, you know, the same thing. So we're kind of invalidating um, what each type of substance does. And the fact is like, there's millions of people all over the world that are prescribed very, very powerful opioids for some kind of physical malady. They need opioids to function Nobody says like, oh my God, grandma's on Oxycontin again. Watch out for your VCR. Um, you know, she's nodding off and drooling. You haven't met my grandma. Um, yeah. that, that does remind me though, you know, one of the important, one of the interesting things in your book is it starts pretty much with you in rehab. That's how the book starts. I feel like a lot of books would end with that, but yours starts with that. And, you know, it, <laughs> it's not like the typical Hollywood structure where you come in and you go into rehab and then you come out and you're, you're healed it's sort of a much more realistic telling of it. Let, let me ask you about your thoughts on the usefulness of rehab or the mm -hmm. place of these, these inpatient rehabs. I find them fascinating. Like 
I think they can, I think they may have a role for some people. Um, you know, yeah. I don't know, but they, they certainly lend themselves to this cult like thinking sometimes, which really yeah. concerns me. If you like, you, you learn about cults like Synanon, which started as offshoots of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they, they, they can very easily develop a lot of these very internal like policing. Um, it, I, I could see it, it being useful, but I could also see them being kind of dangerous. So what role do you think they play? Um, I think they are more dangerous than not. I think there's enough science that shows that faith and abstinence-based treatment um, increases your risk of overdose, relapse, and death. And um, you know, there was this study in JAMA, I think um, Sarah Wakeman put together that said, uh, you know, buprenorphine and methadone are obviously much more effective at, at um, dramatically cutting those risks. Going to rehab increases those risks, doing absolutely nothing. So like you find out my kids on heroin, I don't want them to die. I'm gonna buy a bunch of Narcan. I'm gonna make them promise they're not gonna use alone. Their chances of being alive in a month are better with that than sending them to rehab. I mean, I, I, I don't know if most people realize that like overdose happens so much when you get out of jail or rehab because you have no tolerance. I, I feel like people equate um, legalization with like, I don't want more people using drugs instead of, I want less people dying from drugs. You can't, overdose is impossible to prevent. Um, if you don't know how potent the dose is. Um, yeah. So yeah. you bring up alcohol a few times in your book as a great example. And I mean, I think most people don't think of alcohol as a drug because <laughs> our government has such a, done such a good job of classifying it as a food, which is ridiculous to think <laughs> of. Um, and this idea that like supervised consumption sites, safe consumption sites, whatever you want to call them for, for people who use heroin, people who use meth, anything like that, is so out of the question for the same people who say like live in for the weekend, um, yeah. like weekend warrior, go to the bar, do all their shots. Like that, that's a supervised consumption site. The reason you drink in a bar is so that you're not at home in your basement drinking an entire bottle of liquor so that oh. you're not yeah, in some stranger's apartment. That's true, but any moron can be a bartender because you know what you're pouring. And yeah. you be a doctor to work at a safe consumption site because you have no fucking idea what people are injecting. Like. And that's, yeah, the other governmental issue is that it's the regulation. We've created a safe supply of alcohol, which alcohol is not safe right. in any, any amount. Prohibition um, of fatality spikes. Um, yeah, we saw people getting, I mean, people didn't necessarily die from it, but they were dying more. Uh, you were drinking methanol. They were drinking these uh, adulterated compounds that would leave them permanently paralyzed. And that's still uh, happening today. And I mean, like in Madagascar, there was um, the beer that, that killed like 120 people um, a few years ago. There's in the Czech Republic, there's a bunch of um, alcohol that's going around. Like people are making um, like it looks like some kind of fancy vodka, but it's actually something really horrifying that's going to kill you. Um, and they had to have a very serious crackdown about that. But like if we didn't moralize drugs, the solution to this problem would be so obvious. And most people that I talk to that say, um, no, 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 we can't legalize drugs because more people are gonna use drugs and, and blah, blah, blah. And then you go like, okay, so then if heroin and meth were legal, like you'd obviously be very psyched to use it. And we know that because more people are gonna use drugs. Do most people you know, would most of them use, use these drugs? And they're like, no, I don't know anyone who would use them. Well, then why is your argument against saving lives based on, I, I, I'm worried more people are gonna use and you don't know anybody who's gonna use? Like, I, I, I get that, I get that point. And I am actually for um, harm reduction in, in almost all settings, not completely. We'll talk about vaping on some other show, but <laughs> I, I, I do, I am, I am for that. You do mention in your book something though, that 
I, I I have a hard time wrapping my brain around and, and it comes up here again where you say alcohol isn't legal because it's safer. Alcohol is safer because it's legal. I, I understand the, that point, but at the same time, and also I know it's hard to compare one apple to an, another orange, but at the same time, I, you know, if, if methamphetamines and if opioids were as ubiquitous as alcohol, I think it would be a different subject. I think it's hard to say that. No, it, de- it definitely would. I mean, I think, you know, the thing with alcohol, like, because I don't drink, um, I'm never around drunk people. And I have this friend who um, lives in the Midwest. He's a recovering alcoholic and he relapsed last year. And he called me at like two o'clock in the morning and I picked up my phone and he's yelling and screaming. And I, like, I, I thought something was, I didn't realize he was drunk. You know, like I was so freaked out. Um, alcohol, like people get into bar fights and they get very, um, you know, I mean, I hate to make generalizations, but I mean, my grandfather got drunk and he was funny. Um, some people get violent and, you know, drive into trees like you never know. Um, I think everybody agrees that like, if somebody wants to smoke weed and play ultimate Frisbee, like that's fine. Pot's not killing anybody, whatever. People on amphetamines get all kinds of amped up um, and they're known for, you know, particularly bad behavior like that. That feels like a problem similar to alcohol and the, you know, drunk driving, um, driving while intoxicated and all that. Like, I, I don't think that anybody um, gets violent on opioids, you know? I think people do violent bad things and commit robberies to pay for their drugs, but I, I don't think anybody would say that like somebody on morphine is, you know. Well, I, I, I get that. And I get the argument. That's the argument that people make with alcohol versus pot. It's like, when's the last time you saw a bar fight over someone with pot? But the truth right. of it is, that's not how most people with alcohol hurt themselves. I mean, right. alcohol is a chronic thing. And, and yeah. it does. I, and it's hard for me to I, I can't I can't really believe that they're equally safe. Uh, that they're all equally safe. I think some medications, yeah. some drugs are, are, are worse than others. Yes. I also will say this. I think that everybody, and you guys correct me on, uh, tell me what your thoughts are here, but I think that everyone has something that will get them. It, yeah. it, it's just that they may not have been exposed to it yet. If yeah. you have not dealt with addiction, that's fucking great. But it might just be because you haven't been exposed to that one thing that will get you. The one oh. thing that will get into your under your skin and fuck you up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we also, I mean, when we talk like this whole idea of genetic predisposition to addiction, it seems like, I mean, like I have this aunt and uncle, um, he's a workaholic, but it's okay because he makes tons of money and she's an exerciseaholic, um, clearly. Uh, so if their kid went to rehab and they said, is there addiction in the family? They would say no. And nobody would question it mm-hmm. because their, uh, you know, aholisms are not things that we moralize. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think when you talk about, you know, everybody has something that gets them. Like, I think everybody has something, you know, whether whether it's, uh, you know, healthy or not, like there's, everybody has some kind of, you know, thing. Um, yeah. And just to jump back to the comparison, I mean, certainly comparing different substances and like different biological mechanisms, doesn't I don't I don't like that ever but I think in this case the comparison between alcohol and kind of the street opioid supply is is relevant um, because as a toxicologist I mean I could say alcohol is directly toxic to every cell lineage and organ system in your body there's no amount of alcohol that is safe for any person certainly you can consume a little bit of alcohol it's a negligible risk um, like, I'm not saying we all need to be teetotalers. I mean, I, I had a glass of wine tonight. Um, 
But the same thing is true with opioids. They're, they are actually less toxic directly to kind of your, your cells and your organs. Um, and we have had people using heroin for over a hundred years now. Heroin has only been illegal since 1924, which I guess is a long time. But before it was made illegal, no one was dying from these fentanyl overdoses, carfentanyl overdoses. And the number of deaths, I mean, even from kind of like prescribed OxyContin in the 90s and early 2000s from prescription fentanyl compared to kind of the street illicit powdered fentanyl that, that exists now, um, the, the death rates are just astronomically different. People about- don't, don't die from pure heroin the way they do from our our illegal supply after we have destroyed the heroin supply. Yeah. And, well, and I'm, we gotta, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a hepatologist, so I deal with livers, you know, so I see the outcomes of chronic liver disease. But let me let me ask you, though, do you feel that the uh, the ability to become addicted to alcohol is equivalent to the ability to become addicted to heroin? No, no. Heroin is I think heroin is much more addictive. Um, no question. But alcohol will kill you in withdrawal and heroin addiction won't. Um, and I mean, ultimately, and alcohol too is very addictive. I mean, I think it's very hard to quantify that. And like shooting heroin versus taking a drink for the first time. Um, but the way our society places this emphasis on drinking has created a lot of alcohol problems. This is true. Our, our society does that. Our society does glamorize alcohol. Oh, in the movie, someone's sad, they go have a beer. Someone has something to celebrate. We have a drink. It's like everything is yeah. sort of uh, yeah. there's, there's an exclamation mark. Yeah, yeah. And talking about kind of the spectrum of like tolerance, dependence, addiction, withdrawal, all of that. I mean, alcohol definitely fits on there. We have tons of people addicted to alcohol. Tons of people dependent on alcohol. Tons of people who go through alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, and those numbers are going up very dramatically too, which yeah. is kind of troublesome because all the focus now is on opioids. And no, no one really cares about alcohol, amphetamines, all of that stuff that that's going on in the background. I mean, if 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 um, you know, if 280 people were dying every day because beer was uh, actually methanol and they didn't know it, um, you know, it would be because alcohol is illegal, and we wouldn't stand for that. You know, I mean, like that's really kind of the bottom line is like, what is more important than saving lives here? Like, this is the leading cause of death in America right now um, for uh, people under 50. And it's happening because there's no way to know what you're putting in your body. Like, you know, with OxyContin, like it's, uh, I mean, most pills, um, pharmaceuticals, they're, it's a different color. It's not like an 80 milligram OxyContin is like the size of a hamburger and a 10 milligram is, you know, teeny tiny. So, you know, you know, doses um, when something is legal, you know, what, when you're pouring a drink, what you're pouring. If you didn't know what you were pouring and you drank a pint of something that would kill you, like you'd have no way to prevent it. So, People are dying because they can't, there's no way to prevent overdose. I mean, you buy a bag of heroin, like the, big, the biggest danger in any bag of heroin is um, not knowing what's in the bag yeah. of heroin. You know? right, I mean, right. And so the beer example is a great example because there was a beer company in North America in I think the 70s or 80s that started using cobalt in their beer to make it more foamy, have like a nicer head when you pour it. Uh, and cobalt is very, very bad for the human heart particularly. Um, and so like dozen, dozens of people developed heart failure and it was not a huge number. It wasn't the 93,000 people in the United States who died from an overdose last year. Uh, and that company, I don't think exists anymore, but you can't put cobalt into beer anymore. Like this was a, a huge deal. It's a landmark thing 
that I have been forced to learn about ad nauseum, even <laughs> though it, it can't even exist anymore. Um, and yet you can go out on, on any street corner and buy uh, a stamp bag of heroin that maybe has xylazine, has these other like antifungals, cutting agents. I mean, you can get strychnine in your heroin. It, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I think I smell what you guys are cooking when you're talking about the way we've moralized these drugs as opposed to the way we've moralized or not alcohol. But at the same time, we're never going to go the way of Portugal in this country. I just don't see that ever happening. We're not going to legalize these medications anytime soon. I have a hard time believing that. Maybe I'm wrong, right. you know, but I, I don't see that ever happening in this country. We can barely get people to vaccinate, much less open their minds to something else, you know, that's even hard for me to accept and tolerate. So what can we do? What, what are the things that we can do uh, in this regards? Uh, I mean, Ryan's doing his bit by trying to stop people from making monsters out of addicts, showing them as normal human beings. What, what else can we do and what can doctors do? I mean, you know, I feel like um, Portugal's direction, I mean, decriminalization is, doesn't change the drugs and the drugs are what's killing people. So it's like, if you don't get arrested for being on a highway median, but you have to run across blindfolded both ways, like you're going to die, you know, mm -hmm. that's the problem. Um, so, so I feel like legalization is the only way for a person to manage the, ri the risk of overdose, um, the way that it can be managed with alcohol. And, you know, again, it's the, it's the not knowing what it is. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, I understand that like legalizing drugs is rife with all kinds of problems, but the worst case scenario of legal drugs seems less terrible than all these people dying. And we're a country, right? I mean, we're an instant gratification society. Depression rates are skyrocketing. There's all kinds of, you know, West Virginia, like you grow up there, you've got no future and you know that when you're a teenager and heroin comes into town you know, forget it. We have more restrictions on opioids now than we did before. That's driving people to these illicit markets. Like I, I, I can't think of a single argument that isn't really an argument against saving lives um, to not legalize drugs. So what, what we can do, I mean, I feel like, you know, the, the, there's this drug seeking behavior, um, you know, narrative. I, I don't know if you guys have seen this. Uh, it was on Twitter a few months ago. Um, I'm sure it's been on before. It's like a wine goblet and it says, um, tears of uh, uh drug seeking junkies or something um mm, have you seen that? Yeah. we don't hang out with those kinds of people david I, I, I know you don't i haven't um, seen that particular one but i yeah we get the gist of what you're it, describing yeah, yeah. yeah. i'm yeah, not so surprised I mean, it exists yeah. exactly so i feel i mean you know in right now like buprenorphine right now is very hard um uh the fentanyl makes it very tough to get on people are going into precipitated withdrawal um because fentanyl is stored in your fat cells so there's places in Canada that are giving um, slow release oral morphine for 10 days before buprenorphine and they have a hundred percent success rate, right? I, I know that buprenorphine works. If I didn't know that and I was on heroin and it was fentanyl um, and I took a tiny little piece of a strip and I got like precipitated withdrawal, I would never go near buprenorphine again. I, like I wouldn't care if everyone says it works. Um, so I feel like that's something that it would be great if doctors would do that um, like a kind of manage, I mean, look, if somebody comes to your office and they want to get on buprenorphine, like, I think we need to believe that they want to stop. Like yeah. there's, there's this, um, idea right now that you can't trust, uh, you know, any, any junkies and, and even somebody who shows up with like, I'm so consciously aware 
every time I go to a doctor for anything, if they mm-hmm. know my history with history. addiction, I feel like they're looking at me like, um, you know, what's the angle here for drugs? Like I had this awful cough and sore throat and my wife was like, you got to go to the doctor. And I thought like, I don't want to go to the doctor because he's going to think that I'm there for like some kind of, you know, drugs. And if I say I'm not here for drugs, like I really just need, you know, a Z-Pack um, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, so- you. it's really interesting. It's such a, it's really in the last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of experiences that have really sort of opened my eyes to um, how patients feel judged. Um, I recently did an interview for a magazine and it was a magazine that uh, wanted to talk about anal sex. And they're like, as a gastroenterologist, which I also am, they're like, well, doctors um, judge it. If we tell them that, are they going to use that? Is that going to be the back of their heads when we, when they're giving us advice, are they going to look at us differently or give us different recommendations based on that? And I, you know, my answer was, I hope not. I hope not. But, but you know, know, doctors are human. Doctors have their own prejudices and something that doctors are working on, something we talk a lot about on the show to deal with. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting to to hear from your perspective, how you have to worry about that. You're worried about it more than anyone else because you have to deal with that. And I'm I'm sure some of it's probably, you you know, you worrying about it and being paranoid about it, but a lot of it's probably real. I mean, you're probably getting some real judgment. That worry comes from a real place. I mean, I have a a bunch of patients who have long-term addiction and they all tell the same story. They are, do not like seeking medical care. They have never felt safe or welcomed um, and put it off like till the very worst. And I think getting back to kind of the question of like, what can we do if like a legal safe supply isn't on the table in the, the near term future here, I think conversations like this and kind of the like honest telling in the book here about kind of like what what drug use is i mean there's dr carl hart yeah. is out there talking about kind of people using drugs too um people are not just like the stereotypes you see in hollywood movies it's not mila kunis with bad makeup on um <laughs> that movie then, really bothers you i know <laughs> oh my god don't even get me started but like honestly i mean at the end of the day i know people in this country are very much against kind of legalizing drugs there's this puritanical background that we will never escape, it's I don't think. I mean, but uh, yeah, if, if you're against a safe supply, a regulated legal drug supply, then you are inherently pushing people to an unsafe supply, promoting an illegal, yeah. unregulated supply. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of the conversations we need to have is that like illegalizing, criminalizing, whatever has not been a solution. It has only made things worse in the 100 years since heroin was made illegal which will be worth three years short of that. Um, but laws, laws, astronomically, more people are dying. Yeah, and I think, I mean, everybody knows, like nobody nobody wants to go murder somebody and they're like, oh, well, wait a minute, that's illegal. I'm not going to do it. Or like, you know, I mean, how many, you know, you speed on the highway and you're, oh shit, the speed limit is 55. I better slow down because I'm breaking the law. Like bank robbers don't reevaluate because, you know, they're breaking the law. Like, so nobody, every like laws didn't stop me from using drugs, but laws definitely fucked up my life in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not cool. So, okay. There's, there's so much I want to cover, but we have some limited time here. So, um, I want to close up with discussion of, you know, when your last use was and what you've been doing with boop, buprenorphine, buprenorphine. I just, I have like a mental block when it comes to the name. So Ryan has told me just to use the word boop. So 
uh, how long you've been on it and what's the plan is there a plan to taper what's what's the plan here um i got on it in in 2008 um and uh and, and i've been on it every day since um so I, I mean i knew from like you know however long it takes for the first dose to kick in whether it was like 20 minutes or you know 45 minutes or whatever um i knew that it was exactly what i needed. i mean it, it lifts me it li like depression is a degenerative biological condition right so it it raised me out of the basement of kind of baseline depression which was exactly what i needed and um i think you know heroin was obviously very effective but it was way overkill for my kind of depression like i, I still get you know depressed sometimes with circumstances or whatever but buprenorphine is great um, and, uh, I mean, I've had so many fucked up experiences at, at drugstores at this point, um, where like, you know, traveling or, or I'm like five minutes early and they're, you know, they're assholes about it. Um, but, uh, I, my, I switched buprenorphine doctors. My first doctor was, he just, he was like a neurologist from Cornell. Um, and he kind of felt like a drug dealer. Like it was a very transactional sort of, you know, five seconds thing. So I, I switched to a different buprenorphine doctor, um, after I'd been on for 10 years. And she said, you know, yeah, you should be on it, you know, forever. And, and then like a few months later, she was saying, you know, you've been on this stuff for 10 years, like you don't need it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I guess it was more than 10 years. Um, Cause I, I, I had been on, I had like outed myself um, uh, and I was on Twitter, like screaming about, you know, you, you don't let anybody shame you out of buprenorphine. And in the meantime, I didn't, I, I couldn't speak up for myself. Um, and so I went along with weaning down um, I was on like 24 milligrams and I went down to eight pretty quickly. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't feel good. Um, you know, the more, the more that came off. And like when she was talking about getting down to six, I just thought like, this is a really bad idea. I mean, it's an insurance policy. Like I, I know that it's managing my depression. I know that it's, I mean, I'm not worried about like somebody showing up at my house, um, with a giant pile of dope, but like, why do I want to take that chance? Like, life is better with this. And why would I want to be miserable if I don't have to be? Like, what's the point of that? Um, and I never kept track of my sober time anyway. Like abstinence wasn't anything that I cared about. Like I just wanted to feel okay in my own skin. And this is the only antidepressant that's ever worked. So, um, so. Is this, the, is this the only anti, I mean, are you taking any antidepressants along with this? Are you taking no. any other medication? This is it. I mean, this is how you were treating your depression then. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in therapy, um, once a week also, but, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the most effective, uh, I mean, heroin was a lot more effective, but as an illegal substance, there was a lot of, you know, risks and, and hiding and bullshit that, um, I couldn't stand. This is as good as, I mean, I, tr I've tried every antidepressant you can think of. And I, and mm -hmm. I tried, um, uh, Wellbutrin and, um, Lexapro, like a, a few others over the past few years, like when I was weaning off of you. Um, and it just, like, it just doesn't work. Yeah, um, sure. So, so I mean, Ryan, is this, uh, I mean, I'm not that familiar with the use uh, of boop. Uh, like is, is it typically, I thought in my, from my limited knowledge of it, it was used usually in the immediate setting and then it's tapered off, but I know it can be done for maintenance. Is that, pretty common in your experience? So the traditional use has been like for acute withdrawal and then tapering people off. And that's kind of based on these horribly outdated models of kind of abstinence-based recovery that have shown time and time again. And like we have 
decades of very high quality evidence showing these are, are terrible models of thinking, um, that doesn't work. So the good evidence for buprenorphine, which buprenorphine has been around for a long time, unfortunately, I mean, it hasn't been available in the United States for that long and still isn't widely available, but uh, it's an established, well-studied drug. Um, the best evidence shows that people should never be taken off of it unless they want to. Um, if they feel like everything else in their life has been sorted out, whatever, whatever their reasons for using drugs in the first place, maybe it's the time, but requesting the patient's taper or expecting them to taper it is only associated with bad outcomes. Yeah, I and I was hoping we would get to this point because this does bring up, first of all, one very interesting thing, that the idea that these medications are replacing one addiction with another, which is totally debunked. Anyone who thinks that anymore just needs to kind of go online and look. I mean, people have structural changes in their brains after being on buprenorphine, the kind of abnormal areas we see in like the frontal lobes and people in the peaks of addiction go away. Your brain actually changes the way it functions. Once you're on this medication, you no longer have, have that addiction. But the other really interesting thing, and we talked about bup before you came on, David, uh, and I said, no one should worry about any of the other opioid receptors besides the mu ones. But yep. so there is another opioid receptor, the kappa, yep. and you won't be quizzed on this, but buprenorphine is <laughs> the on only opioid that's available that antagonizes that receptor. So it mm -hmm. like blocks the effects that it has. And one of the reasons we think that people get depression and mood disorders from being on opioids long-term is yep. because of kappa, the kappa effects. And so because buprenorphine blocks that, it actually has a lot of potential as an antidepressant and has shown a lot of benefits as an antidepressant. And there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies trying, trying very hard to develop the next class of antidepressants that are all kappa opioid antagonists. So saying that it works for your depression totally makes sense to me. I mean, that that's totally reasonable. Um, it's backed up by the science. And I mean, if it's helping you, then that's the most important thing at the end of the day. I mean, it's it's a warm blanket. I you know, like if if every dose of um, opioids, whether your doctor prescribes it or it's illicit, um, your opioid receptors multiply. So like you know, and and there's all of these studies about like neuroplasticity and your brain rewiring and all that. Like the idea that like my receptors are saturated a little bit and that's what they need. Like you know, that's that's good. Um, there's no question that works. And also, I mean, like I was on. Um, uh, what's that terrible? Um, the doctors uh, last year, and they they asked. I forget what the doctor was, but he was like, um, you know, uh, so you've been on this stuff for such a long time. You know, when are you going to come off? And I and and I was like, you know, would you ask like somebody with diabetes? Like, well, you're on that life saving insulin. When are you going to stop taking it? Nobody would ask that in their right mind. Um, I mean, he didn't like it, but like, it's totally true. Like, nobody. It, it, we're in this abstinence um, society, and it's like. I think so many people are like, I'm white knuckling it and whatever. Like, why the fuck are you doing that? Like, why would you want to be miserable? I mean, I, I don't want to be miserable. I, I was miserable for so long. I don't want, I, if I don't have to be miserable, why would I be miserable? Uh, that's a good place to close up here <laughs> um, on our discussion of uh, heroin addiction and sobriety and buprenorphine. Did I say it? Did I say it right? Buprenorphine, yeah. buprenorphine, <laughs> buprenorphine. That was good. Boom. Yeah. Got it. Um, Tell us, by the way, the book is, is really excellent. Unlike Ryan, I don't read a lot of books about addiction. I don't think I even read Trainspotting, but I really enjoyed this book. It is a very, uh, it's a very quick read. It goes by very quickly because you just can't put it down. Um, where can people find it and, uh, and, and give us your plugs? 
Um, okay, uh, you can find it um, anywhere. I mean, it would be better if you went to your local bookstore and, and ordered it, but you can also order it on Amazon. Um, if you want signed copies, they're only available by either coming to my house um, or there's a bookstore in my town called Split Rock Books. Um, they have a website you can order from them. My website doesn't sell books, but it has information about my book and links to articles I've written and stuff and all of my social media. It's davidposes.com. Um, and uh, I, I don't, I'm not selling anything else. So. Well, it's a great book. So thank you. thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Uh, and hey, Ryan, thank you again for joining us as well. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, David, for writing this and sharing it. We'll be recommending this to everyone. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.